0: MSW Media. Donald Trump is threatening to use the military against our own citizens in the United States. Is this legal and constitutional? Let's get on topic. Welcome to On Topic, a weekly in-depth look at a topic that helps us understand the week's news. My name's Renato Mariotti. I'm a former federal prosecutor, a practicing lawyer, and a legal analyst, and I'm joined by my friend Patty Vasquez, the host of The Patty Vasquez Show, who joins us regularly on this podcast. But before I speak with Patty, I want to thank our patrons who brought you this episode, with special thanks to Michelle Du, James Fromier, Jay Gelhausen, Jamie Gordon, Patrick, Steve Hungsberg, Shana Wichinski, and an anonymous patron. You too can become a patron on our website, ontopicpodcast.com, all one word. Just click the support link at the top of the page. So, Patty, I have to say, um, this topic is one that I never thought we would need to discuss. It is I mean, it's something that I think a lot of people feared, but I think we all hoped that w- wouldn't be a reality. And it's, 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 it seems so close to a line of, you know, danger, danger here, potential totalitarianism, where you have the president of the United States talking about United, using the United States military. Against protesters, people who are exercising their constitutional rights.
1: No, I, Renato, here's the thing. When Trump won, I had friends who believed that somehow we might be headed toward a coup someday where, you know, that he would be so erratic uh, with his behavior and decisions that someone would have to come in and, you know, the military might even turn on him. But he's been there. You know, for so long and he has developed this incredible amount of power with his base and the GOP has gone along with him. They've gotten what they wanted out of him, whether it's policies or appointments to the Supreme Court. And now to use this language, there are people who aren't surprised that he has resorted to this kind of behavior and this kind of threat. Don't you think?
0: Yeah, I think that's right. I think a lot of people aren't surprised. And I you know, one thing I've been flagging throughout his presidency is the way in which Trump has been trying to delegitimize the institutions that would potentially be countering his power, checking his power, whether it's the courts, the law enforcement, uh, you know, Congress and so forth. He's been systematically doing whatever he can to weaken uh, the checks and balances in our system, the way in which power is distributed, not just in one branch, but evenly. Uh, He has been going out of his way to do that. He's been attacking reporters, the free press, you know, something that we've talked and had many conversations about before. But this is like such an escalation, and it really does appear like, um, you know, uh, kind of a, a, the next leap forward is like the use of the military domestically. I mean, you had these images of the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff strutting around the streets of D.C. in
1: uniform, checking on troops. I mean, it was it was a scary sight. Well, it's interesting that you point out journalists because you're right. He has taken great effort in order to delegitimize journalism, and we have seen that manifest in very violent ways during the protests, as reporters are being attacked by policemen, by police officers. It's it was startling. There was a one woman who lost her vision in one eye because she was shot with a rubber bullet. Um, you know, there have been reporters who were arrested right in front of us on television on CNN and it is it, it's because he has put a target on them and he continues to spread that net as to who he wants to isolate to marginalize and really destabilize our our institutions that have really kept this country going in many ways.
0: Yeah, I have to say it's it, it's definitely took a turning point. You know, early on, you know, you had for example Omar was arrested who I no, as as you know, I've been on CNN a lot. He's somebody who's based in the Chicago bureau, so I know him personally. You know, he and others were you know have been arrested or they were hurt by police forces. You know, to me, it's almost like there's two separate problems here. Obviously, look, we the police. There's an issue of police brutality. There's an issue of militarizing the law enforcement process and and the use of sort of aggressive military like methods against their own citizens by police. But there, at least, it's by police forces. And then you have separately, you know, what happened was this, this Senator Tom Cotton, who's a smart enough person to know better, frankly, it was, uh, you know, I th- went to, whether it was Harvard or Yale Law School, smart guy, who's basically, for political purposes, trying to egg on Trump, like, let's crush the opposition, let's use the 101st Airborne. Trump is egged on, and, you know, he had that rant with governors, essentially saying, you know, you need to crush these people, and his idea it's almost like a you know he has these totalitarian uh, impulses where the idea is okay let's use the sort of the, do what china would do or do what russia would do against its own citizens where you're having you know troops marching against them to me it's like wow we've gone from from police taking actions against a journalist to now journalists potentially caught in the crossfire between members of the military i mean it's just crazy
1: right it is uh, some strange dystopian future. I never thought I would have to endure.
0: Yeah, and I will say, I really, you know, you pointed out the the danger that journalists are facing, Patty. I have to say, we ha- we cannot be thankful enough for the work that they're doing because that is what we can see what happens. I mean, that is really what made such an impact back in the '60s was people who are living in a bubble in white America. Seeing what was happening to protesters, see what was happening to people who were demonstrating and speaking out against injustice, and here now we're seeing. I mean, obviously, there's it's a mixed scene. I, certainly, there was a lot of there's been a lot of looting and crime. I mean, it's definitely you have to distinguish between protests and and obviously criminal activity. But still, people have seen real protests. They've seen cruelty by by law enforcement. Now they're seeing troops in the street. What journalists are doing now is a true public service.
1: It is. And I, I, um, I, I'm i lucky enough to have many friends in Chicago who are doing the hard work of being there. And it's interesting, too. There's a writer, a journalist named Bob Chirito, who has posted because there's a lot of young journalists who are coming out on the street. And he said, you know, message me if you want to learn some of the, t- you know, tactics that are necessary in order to be in these dangerous situations, like have a plan of what you're going to do if things get ugly, you know, be aware of your surroundings. And it's really interesting because there are a lot of folks who are doing it on their own. Everyone has their cell phones and they're, whether they're bloggers or they want to consider themselves documentarians and that's great. They want to show up and make sure that this is recorded and that there are witnesses and, and to tell the story. But there is, you know, that goes back to the fact that journalism is, you know, something that, that people are, they, they get school and training to do. And and uh, again, you know, the president has made it seem as though this is not a legitimate uh, line of work or career or endeavor. And really, we rely on them so very much.
0: Absolutely. Um, absolutely. And, you know, it's now at a time, too, where journalists have been so under siege, not only by Trump, but by market pressures and other things. I mean, here in Chicago, So many Chicago Tribune journalists right now are not getting paid. Many are on furlough. Many have been fired. You know, we have fewer journalists than ever covering, you know, some Uh. of the most important uh, stories of our lifetimes.
1: Oh, yeah. Don't even get me started on the Chicago Tribune. As I mentioned, I I have a lot of friends who are writers. And, uh, you know, Peter Nikias, who's one of the most remarkable uh, crime writers that I've ever read, uh, you know, helped start the union at the Chicago Tribune and now, you know, the Tribune has been bought up by hedge fund investors, which is, again, another whole other thing. But at a time when we need them the most, they have been really undermined by people trying to make a profit off of something that's not necessarily profitable anymore because of advertising. But the other thing I wanted to go back to, you mentioned the violence and the. Uh, crimes that have been committed under the cloak of these protests. And that's really been troublesome, too. And, and we always know that there's a danger that, that someone will hijack a situation that, uh, you know, there there's a couple different avenues of, of that conversation. And, and I am very cautious in the language that I use uh, because I have so many friends. I actually have, know three people, three black men who were arrested over the weekend, uh, who, one of whom is still uh, in, in jail right now or being held, at least, Um and, uh, you know, they were peacefully protesting. And I, I, you know, it's hard for me to imagine what they went through, the terror that their family is going through right now, not knowing what's happening to them. But, you know, there are others that do, you know, we we saw in Chicago, there was a man who was arrested from, he came here from Galesburg, Illinois, in order, and he went to Minnesota as well, in order to uh, cause a lot of this mayhem. There's a footage of a, a, the, the uh, young man who started the one of the cop cars on fire, which kind of Torched the initial uh, round of violence on Saturday night. And, it, it, you know, we know that it's possible and it's unfortunate that that's, that that's where the conversation has gone. And I think that Chicago protesters did a remarkable job yesterday of leading a peaceful protest in order to redefine the story. And that's important here because, uh, you know, the we are still without charges against the other three officers. And beyond that, I think that we need to make demands of our states. Uh, obviously, our federal government right now isn't going to do anything when it comes to how police officers are trained. But in Illinois, we need to have mental support for our first responders, which I believe really influences the way in which they behave when uh, they encounter uh, you know, people in certain situations.
0: Absolutely. And, and I will say, uh, Patty, too, um, look, I, I think it's important for everyone to separate out people who are protesting versus people who are committing crimes, because, you know, I'll just say, you know, I, I had tweeted yesterday about my hometown in Naperville where I grew up. You know, there's there's massive looting there yesterday, stores being broken into and things being stolen. And, uh, you know, the library was just was really damaged just severely. But that was by these sort of—really, it's like a lot of white folks who came came in. They pro, they may or may not even live in Naperville or be near that area, coming in well after the protests were done. You know, there was these Black Lives Matter protests earlier that were peaceful, and then a totally different crowd comes in. And they, it's essentially criminals using what what's going on as an excuse, as a cover— For committing crime, and that's really that's separate. And you're right that it's easy to mix up those two. It's easy for people in terms of rhetoric, but it's also in terms of law enforcement. It's important. It's very easy for law enforcement to potentially confuse people. I know there was federal charges brought against individuals uh, here in Chicago who were involved in protests. I'm sure there are across the country, uh, and I suspect that some of those, uh, you know, potentially have issues with those prosecutions. So I think. It's important for us, not only in terms of the law, but also in terms of how we talk about those things to keep the the two groups separate.
1: Well, and and I know we're going to have this conversation. I think the other issue is this uh, incendiary, not just language, but images that are being shared on social media in order to gin up fear and... This, uh, you know, suspicion of black people in white communities, because I don't know if you saw that on the in communities where there are higher populations of police officers, including my neighborhood, they were sending out the and I, I had someone ring my bell, Renato, one of my neighbors rang the bell and said, D- don't go out after seven o'clock. They're going to be coming up Northwest Highway. And, you know, they're they're feeding off of already, you know, people are watching the news, they're seeing what's happened in other neighborhoods, they're afraid it's going to come to the northwest side of Chicago, and it, it is uh, something that, that is coming from the top down. This comes from President Trump and his inability to lead. Uh, you know, I don't, we don't need him to inspire, but we at least n- n- need to know that there is a, a there's somebody who has our ba- all of our backs and i have never felt like this president was somebody who believed i was one of his citizens that he was there to serve all of us
0: well there's no question you have a president who is encouraged um white nationalists and racists and of course has used terms that are racist you know i think it, you know there's i think it's 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 telling how he refers to African-Americans, whether it's athletes, uh, black women journalists, for example, his own racism comes out through his comments and through his actions. So he can't unify this country in the way that we would expect from a president. That's what we would would all expect from a president during this time, a president to come above all this to try to unify us, to call for peace, to call for nonviolent protests and so forth. And Trump is not capable of that, He himself uh, has stoked these divisions, and he knows that he's not going to win as a uniter. He's only going to win re-election as a divider. And so he wants to use this opportunity to stoke division, to stoke hatred, because that's what got him in that office in the first place. That's right. All right. Well, now let's bring in our guest. Steve Vladek is the Dalton Cross professor in law at the University of Texas School of Law. And he's a nationally recognized expert on constitutional law, national security law and military justice. You may know him because both on television and on social media, he's frequently talking about national security law and also talking about presidential authority. In particular, he's been talking a lot in recent days about whether or not Trump has the authority to use the U.S. military domestically or to commandeer the D.C. police force. So now let's bring in Professor Vladek. Welcome back to the podcast, Professor Vladek. Thank you for joining us.
2: Uh, thanks for having me.
0: So in recent days, uh, President Trump has suggested that he is going to use the United States military within the U.S. borders, uh, potentially against their own citizens. And he's referenced something called the Insurrection Act. I guess it's a starting point. What, what is that? What is the Insurrection Act?
2: So the Instruction Act, it's actually not a very helpful name because it's actually a series of statutes um, dating all the way back to 1792, that are not just about insurrection; that are actually the the core authorities Congress has given the president historically to use military re- uh, force in response to really an array of domestic disorders, uh... invasions, insurrections, you know, other circumstances where, for whatever reason, it's become impossible to execute federal and state laws with local and state authorities, um, and it's been used dozens of times throughout American history. Um, In many circumstances, you know, through cooperation between local and federal authorities. So the most recent invocation of it in 1992 by President George H.W. Bush um, in the middle of the Rodney King riots in Los Angeles was at the request of then Governor Pete Wilson. Um, but it's also been used in contexts in which the federal government was, you know, acting against the state. Um, and, you know, perhaps most famously, you know, President Eisenhower used the Insurrection Act, um, in 1957 when he sent the army into Little Rock, uh, to enforce judicial desegregation orders. So, you know, it's this authority that's been out there really forever. Um, that's meant to be basically the the last resort um, to ensure that when the situation on the ground is just lawless or, or approaching lawlessness, um, that the federal government has a means of either helping local and state authorities restore order or doing it for them when they're either unwilling or unable to do so.
0: You know, it's interesting that you mentioned the example of Little Rock, uh, for example, President Eisenhower and obviously after him, President Kennedy, using uh, the U.S. military to enforce court orders that were, in that case, you know, desegregating schools. It's it was it's actually thought of uh, and generally regarded as a a proud moment in United States history, where President Eisenhower was saying, was saying what you know whether he personally agreed with the Supreme Court or not. We have a rule of law in this country, and the Supreme Court decided that you couldn't have segregated schools, and so he was going to enforce it. It's interesting. You know, really, a lot of this, I suppose, comes down to how this authority is used.
2: I think that's right. Um, How the authority is used, um, but also how much we trust and have faith in the president to use the authority responsibly. And so I think one of the reasons why, you know, this hasn't been a huge source of controversy historically um, is because... You know the the most controversial examples have been examples like Little Rock, where the reason why it was controversial was because you know the president was using the military to ensure equal access to federal constitutional rights, um, something that you know maybe ought not to have been quite so controversial. I think it's a very different context, even if the law is no different. When we're talking about the president using military force, when it may not be necessary, um, when local and state authorities, at least in many of these jurisdictions, may actually be capable of getting things under control all on their own, and when there's at least some suspicion that this is really as much for political purposes as for, you know, an honest belief in the need to, um, you know, calm things down. Um, and just more generally just by folks who don't have a lot of faith in the president to begin with.
0: Yeah. One thing I I think is worth noting too, it's, you you know, it's, it's not, it's it's not like the text of the insurrection act narrowly defines when the president can do this. In other words, you could imagine an act that was written that says the president can do this in very limited circumstances, right? Where, uh, you know, to uh, to enforce a court order, or, you know, things like that, we, and with various checks built in. This act isn't that way. Can you tell us a little bit about kind of the wording of the, of the president's power in this act and how this act really developed? Because really, is it's a it's a pretty old uh, kind of set of, of of laws that was enacted a long time ago. Is that right?
2: it is and one of the one of the really interesting things about it is it, it's old and mostly unchanged i mean the you know the the provisions which you know folks should go look at it is it's in the us code today at 10 usc sections 251 to 255 um the language of these provisions is basically the same language Congress adopted right after the Civil War, the last time it really, you know, comprehensively revisited these statutes in 1871. Um, and so, you know, part of why that's a big deal is because, you know, the statutes were written at a very different time in American history where Congress didn't tend to be that specific um, and where, you know, the sort of the assumption was that Congress would just, you know, delegate fairly broad power to the president and assume that, um, abuses of that authority would be, you know, reined in politically, um, back at a time when it wouldn't have been shocking for members of the president's own party in Congress to, you know, vote to override a veto of his. Um, and I think, you know, in that regard, the Insurrection Act is maybe of a different time where, you know, the, the, the open-endedness of the authority it grants, the lack of obvious limits it imposes, um, were... uh, a recognition of by Congress that in such emergency situations, um, it really would be political considerations as much as legal ones that were doing the work. You know, guys, fast forward to today, when we have a president who, for better or for worse, just doesn't seem remotely bound by political considerations and by conventional political checks. Um, and I think, you know, we're all seeing the very real possibility of how easy it would be to abuse this kind of authority.
0: Exactly right. I think it, it definitely is getting a lot of people concerned about a potential abuse of power and totalitarianism and, and all sorts of words are being thrown around. I do know, you know, ever since, for example, our state, I live in Illinois, our state's governor, J.B. Pritzker, suggested that the Insurrection Act couldn't be used by the president without the governor's permission. A lot of people have had questions about that topic. I know, Patty, you had some questions on that, Right.
1: I do. Uh, and you mentioned, Stephen, ins- situations in which governors have requested uh, military uh, involvement. Has, has any president ever invoked the Insurrection Act without a request from governors? And is there any mechanism to check his power in this instance?
2: So the answer to the first question is yes. Um, it's actually happened fairly often. I mean, just to go back to one of the examples I already mentioned, when Eisenhower sends the army into Little Rock, um, trust me, it was not at Governor Faubus's request. Um, (laughs) right. Um, but the, you know, the, it's, it's not unheard of to use the statute without a request from the governor. Um, historically, the lack of a request has been more of a political obstacle. And indeed, a big part of why President George W. Bush did not use the Insurrection Act to send the military into New Orleans after Katrina, was because Governor Blanco wouldn't ask him to, even though he still could have. Um, As for, you know, what the checks are, I mean, I think here, you know, as we saw last year with the National Emergencies Act um, and the power it delegates to the president to decide when a national emergency exists, you know, Congress, for better or for worse, has written a statute that seems to contemplate that the president um, is the decision maker here. Um, And, you know, I don't doubt that there will be court cases if the president actually carries through on his threat. I just, you know, I'd be surprised if courts find in the statute meaningful criteria by which to assess whether, you know, the factual circumstances are sufficient. Um, It would be one thing if the president were invoking the statute to send troops into a city that had had no unrest, where there had been no violence, where there had been no rioting and looting. Um, But, you know, I don't think we have to look hard to see at least some cities in the country right now where there really is sustained unrest where there really is, you know, trouble on the part of law enforcement in maintaining order. And so in that circumstance, I just have a hard time thinking courts are going to be in any hurry to second guess the president's invocation of the statute.
0: Is that that's really because courts, as a general matter, do not like to second guess uh, the handling of the federal government uh, regarding emergencies? I mean, is that is that fair to say?
2: I think that's totally right. And, and as true as that is as a, as, a, as a general matter, here we have a statute that specifically um, contemplates the president being the, you know, the core, the key decision maker, where there's a ton of historical weight behind that determination. Um, and where, guys, again, I mean, I think, you know, unlike the National Emergency Declaration last year, where there was actually a pretty significant argument that there was no emergency whatsoever, you know, we may disagree about just how, um, Lawless things have become in some cities, and just how bad things are in particular cities on particular nights, but you know the notion that there's no possible justification whatsoever for using the military to restore order is i think belied by the very images we 're seeing on television
0: yeah I, um, I wonder whether or not you know you mentioned that um, that uh, there there would presumably be court cases over this, so just say a governor was was looking to challenge this. I assume that they would try to make some maybe constitutional argument using the Tenth Amendment or something else to suggest that, hey, this is uh, the federal government going beyond its enumerated powers and police powers reserved for the states?
2: Yeah, and I think, think, you know, there might be a Tenth Amendment argument. I think also, you know, it wouldn't shock me if governors tried to point to the language of Article Four of the Constitution, which contemplates the use of the military um, when states ask for it. Maybe to argue that it's actually unconstitutional unless a state requests assistance. Um, although I think that would be an uphill argument given the, you know, the other provisions of the Constitution, given the historical um, development that we've talked about. Um, I just, you know, I think that if any argument's going to have any sway, I think it's likely much more to be a statutory argument that the literal preconditions in the statute weren't satisfied. And there again, I think, you know, the president's not going to have to convince judges to agree with his determination. I think he's just going to have to convince them that it wasn't patently, you know, um, uh, um, frivolous.
0: Wow. Um well, what about in, in there was an attempt to update this law in two thousand and six? Can you discuss a little bit about that?
2: Yeah, so um after Katrina um there was you know I think a lot of a lot of members of Congress looked at the Insurrection Act, tried to figure out why President Bush hadn't used it, tried to figure out how they could maybe you know rein in some of the concerns folks had and so Congress in um, the fiscal year two thousand and seven National Defense Authorization Act. Um, basically tried to get much more specific. I mean, we talked before about how the, you know, the language of the statute states really, even in its most modern form, the 1871, it's just no one's idea of modern. And so Congress tried to modernize the statute, to update it, to be much more specific about when it could be used to set preconditions. Um, and the effect of the statute, the, the effect of Congress spelling out all of the things the president could do under the statute was to freak the heck out of everybody. Um, who didn't appreciate that the, the vague and ambiguous language of the statute as it existed certainly already swept at least that far. So the National Governors Association actually led the charge to have that amendment repealed, and it was repealed in the very next year's NDAA, um, which, you know, I think is an interesting development because I would have thought at that point of Congress would say, all right, let's fix it more responsibly. If this language freaked you out, you know, let's find ways to cabinet it so that you're not freaked out. And instead, all Congress did was revert to the pre-2006 status quo. <laughs> um, <laughs> right? Oh, that, that language freaked you out, eh? All right, well, let's go back to the language no one understands. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, you know, I, I think it was an enormous missed opportunity on Congress's part once everyone was actually paying attention and freaked out about the breadth of the statute to put meaningful limit in it, as opposed to saying, oh, never mind, we're going back to the vague, uncertain, ambiguous status quo we had a year ago, because that's easier politically. Yeah, wow. Uh, Patty, do you have any other questions?
1: Oh, the, your, uh, f- your friends and followers on Twitter have many questions, so <laughs> if, if we can get a couple in there, I'm sure they'd be grateful. Um, one listener asks, is the use of the military for domestic law enforcement not a violation of the Posse Comitatus Act?
2: Um, so this is, I think, a, a key misconception, right? The Posse Comitatus Act, which was enacted in 1878, generally prohibits domestic use of the military for law enforcement, but... It's not a categorical rule. It's a clear statement rule, meaning that it requires some kind of specific authorization from Congress before the military can be used in that capacity. Well, the Insurrection Act was already on the books when the Posse Comitatus Act was enacted, and indeed it was clear in context that uh, Congress understood that the Insurrection Act would satisfy the Posse Comitatus Act. So as long as the president is using the Insurrection Act or other statutes that specifically authorize the use of the military, for law enforcement purposes, the Posse Compost Act actually has nothing to say. Uh, and I think this is, you know, another area in which, you know, what, what most folks sort of think the law is and what the law actually is aren't always the same thing.
0: Wow. Um, one one thing that I find interesting is, you know, Trump has used this term, Insurrection Act, but he hasn't actually done anything formal relating to that. Doesn't that have some significance?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I do think, and you know, I, we there was a um, Ben Wittes and Bobby Chesney and I talked about this a little bit yesterday on on the the National Security Law Podcast. Um, I think it's important just to to sort of remind everyone that this is a big deal, but we're not there yet, right? That, you know, what the president said yesterday was he threatened to invoke the insurrection. act. He didn't actually do it. Um, And indeed, to do it, he actually can't just, you know, nod at somebody or tweet. He actually has to sign a formal proclamation. Um, that sets out exactly what the factual justifications are and that invokes the particular authorities he's relying upon. Um, we're not there yet. And indeed, guys, you know, if I had to bet money right now, I would say we're not going to get there. Like this is bluster and optics on the president's part, not, I think, a real commitment to put the full weight of the federal government into this response, if for no other reason than because if he does it, he owns it. Um, and I think the president was mu- is much happier complaining about what he perceives as inadequate responses from local and state authorities, many of whom are Democrats, um, than he is using the authority that I at least think he has to you know solve these problems, but also to then be directly responsible for anything that goes wrong. Much easier from his perspective to just sort of sit back and complain.
0: Yeah, I think that that sounds about right. I don't think. Um, I think he is more about pointing fingers than doing and doing something more affirmatively, even in the issue, you know, for example, coronavirus, where he would have, you know, I think everyone is expecting the federal government to take more of a leadership role. He, I think, was was happy to defer to states there and let them take more of the blame. And I think in this situation in particular, it seems like it was more about creating imagery that would be a contrast to what is being shown in other localities. Rather than uh, some serious attempt to make policy,
2: but but meanwhile, I mean, right? But but to create that image, right? You know, he has to clear Lafayette Square of peaceful, law-abiding protesters to do it. And you know, I think that's why folks are worried about the Insurrection Act. You know, the statute says what it says. As I said, I think it's been used pretty responsibly historically. But we have a president who's much more interested in the photo op than in you know actually protecting constitutional rights of free speech and the right to, you know, assemble um, in context in which he can even sort of remotely claim um, that he's acting to preserve law and order. And so, you know, a president who's going to do what he did last night is a president who can't be trusted to use the Insurrection Act responsibly, even if the statute as written allows him to do what he's threatening to do.
0: Yeah, let's go to another question from our listeners.
1: One of the questions is, is there a distinction between invoking the Insurrection Act and martial law?
2: Um, there is. I mean, so martial law is it's not it's not the same thing as any use of the military for law enforcement. Martial law is a very specific and extreme subset where there's no functioning civilian authority. Um, and we haven't actually seen that um, in in this country since Hawaii during World War II. Um, and in that context, the military is not supplementing local and state authority. The military is local and state authority. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. I mean, in this, co- no one is suggesting using the military in a context in which civilian and civilian government has completely broke down. This is a much narrower use of the military as supplementing local and state law enforcement. Um, a function the military, you know, is not necessarily best trained for and best suited for, but a role it has played historically. And, you know, one other thing about why, you know, maybe we ought not to be too, too concerned about the military in the abstract, you know, it's worth stressing that in a lot of these protests, especially today, um, the, the folks on the ground who are principally responsible with restorative order um, are the very provocateurs of the protests in the first place, um, when we're talking about, you know, local and state police forces. And so, you know, in that context, this was true at least in L.A. in 1992, the military actually could be a calming influence. Because, you know, they don't have the baggage of the history of, you know, complicated, violent um, episodes, right, of interactions between the public and the police. And so, you know, I think we ought ought to be sort of watchful, right, in this context, but not necessarily assuming that the second the military shows up, you know, that's somehow the end of, of democracy. It hasn't been in the dozens of prior occasions in U.S. history where these statutes have been invoked.
0: Interesting. Uh, well, one thing I wonder, uh, Professor, is let's just say Congress wants to take action here to potentially disapprove of or limit Trump's authority in this specific instance. Would if, for example, Congress had a joint resolution, uh, or uh, you know, w- would that be enough to potentially have an impact on a state's ability to you know win a suit against the government? Uh, for use of the Insurrection Act, or would it take an actual new act of Congress signed into law by the president?
2: I mean, I think it would take a new act of Congress, either signed into law by the president or enacted over his veto. Um, and, you know, in that regard, we're back to where we've been in so many other contexts with regard to the Trump administration, which is, you know, there may actually be a handful of Republicans um, who are troubled by the president's actions and who would join you know, Democratic um, uh, colleagues in the House and the Senate in voting to scale back these authorities. But you need more than a majority. I mean, realistically, you're going to need 290 votes in the House and 67 votes in the Senate. And, you know, I think there were plenty of times in American history where that would have been a no-brainer if the president was abusing the Insurrection Act. Um, I don't think we're there today. And so, you know, that's why I think if Congress really wants to reform these authorities going forward, if Congress wants to actually take the lessons we're learning, Um, from, you know, a president who is not beholden to the same kind of political checks um, as his predecessors. You know, I think the two obvious mechanisms are to not assume Congress is going to be around to fix it, but rather to sunset the authorities so that the president can't just keep doing this in perpetuity, and to provide much more expressly that the courts are supposed to play a role so that the courts can't hide behind um, the statute being, you know, insufficiently clear about a standard. That to me is where there's real teeth to be had in reforms. And there's actually precedent too. I mean, the the original version of the Insurrection Act, dating all the way back to 1792 had both a sunset and a express requirement of judicial review. Um, and I think, you know, those disappeared for reasons that might have made sense in that moment. But I think time has shown, you know, we're myopic. Um, and if I were Congress, you know, regardless of party, I would think it shouldn't be too controversial to put them back. Wow.
0: Well, I it would be nice to, to think that there, you know, potentially could be reforms along those lines. Uh, whether they will happen is another story. Uh, I do want to uh, switch gears for a minute and talk about Trump's commandeering of the D.C. police force. That's something that potentially Congress might have more of a say in. Can you can you explain uh, what happened there?
2: Yeah, I mean, so this this also goes into the bucket of hasn't happened yet, but could. Um, right. Which is um, there was some discussion last night, especially as, you know, it looked like fairly aggressive forces being used against protesters in Washington, that maybe Trump had taken over the D.C. police. Um, This is, you know, the District of Columbia has this very um, strange and sort of second-level status under federal law. I mean, so D.C. has no independent government. I mean, it has a mayor, it has a city council. Um, But in almost every respect that matters, it's beholden to the federal government. And indeed, one of the provisions of the D.C. Code, um, Section 1-207.40, um, if you have your copy of the D.C. Code at home, um, <laughs> provides for the president to literally exercise emergency control over any or all of the D.C. police department. Um, and, you know, this may sound shocking to folks who don't live in D.C. Um, I lived in D.C. for nine years. This is deeply consistent with how the D.C. government is structured, that, you know, there's there's a whole lot of authority that it has until and unless the president of Congress just says otherwise. Um, and the president, all the president has to do is make a, a find him that it's necessary, um, and inform Congress, and then he basically gets to use the DC police for whatever purposes he wants for up to thirty days, unless Congress stops him first. Um, so you know, again, I think part of why, especially last night, many of the scenes we saw—I um, should say, you know, Monday night—many of the scenes we saw were focused in Washington. Um, Is because that's where the president's authorities are at their zenith, where there's no, you know, competing state authority and state constitution um, and where the president can deploy the full gamut of federal law enforcement and even local law enforcement um, um, capacities um, if he chooses to.
0: Right. That would be a different scene if, for example, he decided he wanted to go to a different state unless he had full cooperation of the state authority. Um, You know, we're seeing, for example, even with the Republican convention in North Carolina, that that can't occur exactly the way they would like because the governor uh, of that state disagrees.
2: Uh, Exactly. And again, I mean, the politics here are really important. It's not just that the governor disagrees. It's that the Republican governor of a Republican state disagrees with the president. You know, I think... um, the, D.C.'s political power is, you know, binary, depending upon whether the president's a Democrat or a Republican. Um, so during the Obama administration, D.C. had a fair amount of power because the Obama administration led it, right? Whereas during the Trump administration and during most prior Republican administrations, D.C.'s had virtually no political power. Um, and God, I, mean, I, just, I I should say, and I don't think it's a coincidence that, you know, D.C. is also a city that is, you know, majority black, Um, And the the racial piece of this, I think, is not an irrelevant part of the consideration that, you know, for President Trump, it's a no-brainer to use all of this force in Washington, whereas the politics are much more complicated when we're talking about, you know, states that aren't D.C. Yeah.
0: I mean, I think that there's that's obviously a component here. This isn't just Trump using presidential power in in some emergency somewhere because of a flood. This is him using presidential power against protesters Who are protesting injustice against African Americans? Yep. Wow. Well, Professor, thank you so much for joining us. I've I've learned a lot from this conversation. I really appreciate it. I don't know, didn't always like the answers, but I liked being informed and learning what the answers were.
2: Well, guys, it's always always fun to talk with you, and you know, I the law doesn't always tell us what we want it to, but you know, better that we get it right.
0: Thank you for joining us for this episode of On Topic. Please subscribe to this podcast. Go to your app and review the podcast and join us for our next episode. I'm Renato Mariotti. Until next time, let's stay on topic.